If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for September 23rd, 2021, the true crime edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C., a rainy Washington, D.C. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning. Hello, John Dickerson. John's very concerned with the shape of his cap, his ball cap. Yeah, it's um, uh, the cap and the camera angle makes me look like one of those middle-aged men who don't know how to wear a hat. Um, so I'm. this is the greatest concern this morning. I also noticed you paused a little there, David, as you tried to remember which job I'm doing at the I, moment. It, I literally, that is literally what happened. I never, <laughs> you have a lot of, they're always CBS news, yeah, but yeah, I just yeah. don't know what the affiliation No, was. exactly. Was I correct? You were correct. Yes, you were correct. Uh, then don't have to ask myself what her affiliations are. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily from New Haven. Hey, hey. Yeah, I went to New York to the New York Times building for the first time since pandemic and uh i do really still work there my id still worked although i had to change all my passwords it was like my laptop encountered some force field as did my phone and everything had to be changed did you find any rotten food or anything at your desk <laughs> no well first of all i have or no mints, desk. mints have, that you'd left i have i have a flex desk which is actually in itself a great improvement from pre-pandemic times when i had no desk so yeah no that wasn't a problem if you don't have any stuff then nothing there's nothing that'll rot when you Ain't got nothing. You got nothing to lose, as John might say. Yes. This week, Chris Christopherson's uh, Bobby McGee, for those who are wanting a citation. This week, can Democrats rally and coalesce and manage to pass a debt ceiling increase, an infrastructure bill, and a multi-trillion dollar reconciliation spending package to pursue goals, policy goals that Democrats have wanted for generations? Then... A challenge to the Texas abortion law will arrive in court or arrives in court. What is going to happen? Even even as the state moves to ban still more abortion, ban abortion whole different ways than it already did. Then the murder of Gabby Petito and the bizarre tragedies of the Murtaugh family in South Carolina. What explains this era's true crime mania? Why are we obsessed with it? Are we obsessed with it more than previous eras? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And remember... GAFAS listeners, we are gathering material for our conundrum show, our conundrum show, favorite show of the year, where we talk about things such as, would you rather have the wisdom of age 50 at age 25 or the body of age 25 at age 50? Or would you rather have a washing machine or the right to vote? Please send your 2021 conundrums to slate.com slash conundrum, slate.com slash conundrum. We're gathering them. There are already some great ones in the hopper, but we could use some more. John, can you try to explain pretty simply, because it's really hard, there are like a whole bunch of different things that Congress, the Democrats in Congress in particular, are trying to deal with uh, in the next few weeks. They need to be dealt with. 
and it's very hard to keep track of them. Could you could just give us a simple precy of what the things they're trying to deal with are? Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, I'll try. Here's what's going on. So you have the infrastructure bill that passed with 19 Republicans in the Senate. Then you have the social spending budget, um, the $3.5 trillion social spending budget. Then you have two, two other things happening. Democrats who are in charge have to fund the government to pass a budget to fund the government. And then also the debt limit has to be raised. Also, there is money for uh, hurricane relief in the, in the wake of all of the terrible storms we've had. And there's some money in uh, uh, to give uh, Afghan refugees. The refugees, hurricane, debt limit, and government spending stuff is all in one bill. Infrastructure is in its own bill. The social spending is in another bill. And then just to, to give you more that's going on, because the clock is ticking, you also have uh, the strong desire among Democrats to pass a voting rights bill before they lose power because of what Republicans are being able to are, are doing to change voting within the states. So that is the mess of stuff all happening. And I should finally say that this is at a moment where in some key states where there will be Senate races and House races, the president's approval ratings are as low as they've been since he came into office, which means the Democrats are in a nervous political time. I feel like we need to give each of these bills a name to reflect their personality because it is hard to track. Like the infrastructure bill, the infrastructure bill I can usually remember. I like called that Derek. I'm like Derek because Derek is a, like a name of a piece of equipment and some somebody who might work in construction. But like I can, it's so hard to keep track of what the other ones are. Anyway, that's just me. That's just my uh, aphasia. Well, so you're anthropomorphizing, male anthropomorphizing of the infrastructure bill. Well, can I just quickly interject? I mean, just a $3.5 trillion social spending bill has within it the things that we would conceivably talk about on their own as bills. I mean, universal pre-K, um, community college, the expansion of Medicare, child tax credits. You kind of need a play bill to just keep up with all the things in that one part of this multifaceted diet that Democrats are having to in- eat. So Emily, there's this tension with the infrastructure bill and the and with Derek and the also the huge social policy bill, spending bill. And the tension is that progressives, the more liberal wing of the Democratic Party, very much want a huge social spending bill and that the moderates and then a few Republicans are willing to support the infrastructure bill. But each of them, they, there's, this, there's this sort of mutual assured destruction quality where they each need each other to pass both bills. But each of them is, is kind of reluctant to do much to help the other unless they're sure their, their bill is going to get passed. And, and the tensions between the moderates and the progressives in the Democratic Party, at least, seem to be growing greater rather than more limited. The moderates are attempting to like chisel on the social policy bill taking away the right for Medicare to negotiate better drug prices, to scuttle rent relief within that, that social policy bill. So is this a reconcilable thing? I mean, the, the, can, it, can it happen? I mean, it certainly could, right? But because every single vote in the Senate is needed among the Democrats for all of this, and almost every vote of Democrats in the House, everybody has to be on board. So one thing is, it seems like the dissent 
among the so-called moderates, at least in the Senate, I mean, we're really talking about mansion and cinema for the most part, right? It's like a very small, I mean, key, but <laughs> like, it's not like, I'm not trying to downplay the importance, but it's not like it's like 20 versus 30 or even 10 versus 40. It's like two against 48, right? I mean, and and I think to me at least, I mean, part of me just wants honestly to just wake up when this is over, but the other part of me was struck by this idea of just taking a, quote, strategic pause on the larger social spending bill, which Manchin floated last week, because that just sounded like a non-starter from the point of view of the folks who think that this all has to pass together. And I couldn't tell how if that was, I can't tell how much this is just politics. Like, Mansion in particular and Cinema 2 want to seem like they're very hard to get. They've gotten all these concessions, yada, yada, as opposed to like, really, they're not going to vote for it in the end. Well, it, it, I mean, you do have these big problems. On the one hand, do you deal the Democratic president before uh, before midterm election in which, because our elections are now nationalized, the the success or failure of the president has an oversized influence on on races do you deal him a big blow, either on infrastructure, which he has claimed proves that government works, or uh, on the social spending, which is the centerpiece of his social agenda and goes at these crucial things Democrats have fought for for years? Or do you do something small that he can call a win, something smaller that he can call a win, and then have some number of Democrats in the base of the party think that was no win at all, we're not very enthusiastic about the party, and so we're not going to turn out in the off-year elections. I mean, it, it does seem inconceivable when you sort of step back to think that the Democrats could torpedo one or both of these bills or to, or could to, to essentially cripple and, and undermine a Democratic presidency at a time when you have the majorities in both houses. On the other hand, you know, it does depend on, on a few a few legislators actually casting a vote. I mean, it is very hard to see how in the end that Mansion Cinema would vote against this, but but maybe But until they, they say they're going to yeah. vote for it, there they and, are. And, as, and as somebody, I mean, it's, I think it was Josh Marshall was pointing out that one of the problems is that it's very hard to negotiate with them about to create a, creating a smaller social policy package because they don't know what they want. They just want less of it. Well, they do, and they do know what they don't want, which is to say Mansion doesn't want a number of the environmental provisions in the, the social policy $3.5 trillion budget bill. We know he doesn't want that. But what he's also done is he's helped Republicans who've made the argument that this, this spending is going to lead to inflation and rising prices. The Federal Reserve chairman yesterday suggested, in fact, interest rates might um, rise in, in the next year um, as the Fed changes policy to deal with the economy. So and the, the reason that's a problem is Republicans, it's in their advantage to essentially say all these price increases are the result of democratic profligacy, which gets us back into this question of, of budget, government spending, keeping the lights on in the government and raising the debt ceiling, which Democrats have put into one bill as a way to try to challenge Republicans and say, you're not really going to um, refuse to vote for this, are you? And shut down the government. At the moment, Mitch McConnell is saying, watch me. Why does that matter? Because in the in the off-year elections, Republicans want to run on a unified idea that the, the profligacy of the Democrats is going to destroy America. And even though the debt ceiling is about spending that's already happened, Republicans would like it to all ball it up into one thing. When Manchin says the worry about this spending in the social policy bill is that it's going to increase interest rates and prices, 
that's adding fuel to the Republican fire that they would like to burn. So it's... Um, and then another thing Manchin wants to take out is uh, negotiating for drug pricing, which is a pay for in the bill. It's supposed to save money so you can spend the money on something else. And it's super popular. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's a bunch of Democrats in the House. There's a handful of Democrats in the House who've already also pushed to do that, all of whom get a lot of pharma support, not surprisingly. Mm. But... Yeah, so John, I mean, you you hate to predict. So Emily, do you think that push comes to shove, these bills get passed, and how big are they? I think they pass. I think the three and a half trillion bill gets smaller. I don't know how much smaller. And we should note that the elements of this bill are widely and broadly popular when you pull them individually. The question is, will a big spending package be as popular in the districts where Democrats need to win to hold control? Pelosi says she's lost half her her progressives. So are they really going to stick to that position, arguing basically, look, we always buckle and we're not going to do it anymore? I don't know. I mean, the the progressives are right. Like when you look back for at the Affordable Care Act, all the compromises that were made to make it more palatable to moderates and even to Republicans who were never going to vote for it anyway. And those compromises weakened the bill and made it less less good and less ultimately less popular and less effective. And that's happened repeatedly with big democratic social policy measures that the the things that progressives want, which probably would make the bills better, have been given up because moderates demand it. On the other hand, the fact of the matter is that there is not a progressive majority in the houses of congress there's barely a democratic majority like there has to be some form of accommodation to the reality of it and so you can you can choose a no loaf like like no loaf is better than half a loaf but but that's an explicit choice which i if the progressives in the house end up making that choice when faced with a 2.5 trillion dollar package that cuts out some of their favorite environmental measures that would be probably a bad choice to make even if it's very principled what do you think, John? I, I still do not understand the debt ceiling issue and whether this is a this is all kabuki or whether it's for real crisis level anxiety level situation. Well, I mean, what you have is the normal kabuki of debt ceilings. There is no incentive for Republicans to cooperate with Democrats, even though Democrats have cooperated with Republicans on raising the debt ceiling under President Trump. The reason there's no incentive is they have a very good chance of taking back both houses of Congress. After painting the Democrats as socialists trying to ruin America, doing a deal with Democrats who are trying to ruin America is not something that Republican voters are going to give them any credit for, particularly the kinds of Republican voters that are going to vote in an off-year election. So there's no incentive for them to help Democrats. Mitch McConnell has essentially said, hey, you're running government. Government requires some tough choices. Well, sure, that's true. But in the old style of government, you helped a brother out because someday down the road, you needed that person on some other thing that you want. But as we see talks break down between Cory Booker and Tim Scott over police reform after months and months and months and months, the prediction from President Biden that democracy works again is uh, getting more and more cloudy. So what's happening here is kabuki, but what would require Republicans to buckle, a couple of things would have, have could happen. A, they could feel the political pressure and they buckle. That seems almost impossible. Democrats could back down and say, we're just going to lift the debt ceiling, which is the most precarious of the items. Remember, all four are packaged in one thing. Ted Cruz has said he'll filibuster a vote on raising the debt ceiling. So that's for his own, you know, he wants to do his own thing and get get popular support from the base for that. 
okay, but then what's going to happen? Like you can say Democrats are in charge, but there are only 50 Democrats in the Senate. So for the debt ceiling to increase under any circumstances, whether it's a standalone bill or tied to something else, you're going to need 10 other Republicans. So I'm not quite sure how that gets worked out. Then it becomes its own separate thing. And then you have a fight over spending, which is a little less lower stakes than the raising of the of the debt limit. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Texas anti-abortion law, SB8, is getting the full frontal challenge we expected to it. A San Antonio doctor... Alan Braid performed an abortion after six weeks on somebody, wrote about it, and has now been sued by two people, both weirdly disbarred lawyers from a different state, uh, for violating the Texas law. And both those plaintiffs are seeking the $10,000-plus bounty they can get for defeating Braid in court. So, Emily, I'm interested in you talking about this challenge, this sort of very straightforward challenge to to, well, this is not the challenge to the law. This is the enforcement of the law, which then presumably will be litigated out. But that challenge versus what the Department of Justice is trying to do and what the what the state of play is on this litigation. Well, because the Supreme Court has allowed the law to go into effect and, in my view, pretended that the uh, supposed procedural complexity of the law requires that, this lawsuit against Dr. Braid is the straightforward path to court. The law, the SB8 says anybody can sue. You just have to think that an abortion happened after six weeks. Dr. Braid wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that he'd performed an abortion after six weeks. These two lawsuits filed against him come from two different disbarred lawyers who say they're just enforcing the law um, and presumably are interested in the $10,000 payout that they would get if they won. And so they should, under these very broad terms, have standing to bring a lawsuit, and then someone else should have standing to say, 
uh, Dr. Braid, indeed, should have a stand standing to say, but wait a minute, this law is unconstitutional because Roe versus Wade is still the law of the land, and Roe versus Wade says that you can't ban an abortion at six weeks. That is clearly a violation of the legal standard we've had since the early 90s, which is that states can restrict abortion up until imposing an undue burden on people seeking abortions. So it should go ahead in Texas state court. I think there the big question is how long this will take right. to play out. Right. And that's a huge question because what SB8 has really succeeded at is creating facts on the ground, shutting down, you know, almost all the abortion provision in Texas, a huge threat to the whole business of abortion, to clinics staying open. And so if it takes months and months for this lawsuit to make its way through the state courts before it even gets to federal court, et cetera, uh, it will have an effect just by um, but just by time passing. Can a state court judge enjoin the law in the course? Could a state court judge do what the Supreme Court declined to do and say, I'm not going to I'm going to forbid this law from being enforced in Texas while we litigate this first case? Yes, but I think that a state court trial level judge cannot issue a statewide injunction. You would need a Texas appellate court ruling or a Texas Supreme Court ruling to have that statewide impact, I think. Which which you could get on the 10th of or on the 1st of October when the Department of Justice has a hearing, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that lawsuit is more tricky just as like, is what's the federal government doing showing up here? I mean, they have arguments. They're talking about how the Constitution is supreme and this Texas state law is preempting it. And then they also made this um, interesting argument about something called intergovernmental immunity, which I had to go look up, but which basically says that there are a bunch of federal officials in Texas who work for the Job Corps, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, other agencies, and they're tasked with transporting women who seek abortions to help them get them when that's legal and they can't do their jobs anymore. And so the idea is that the state law is interfering with these federal officials carrying out their duties. Ooh, that's good. That seems, yeah. that seems that looks credible. like standing, right? So, yeah. Yeah. We'll see. You could have this other DOJ thing effectively create an injunction, um, at least temporarily. Um, yeah. Yes. Can, can I ask a question, Emily, whether you think that this is backfiring, that the authors of SB8 who said we didn't think anybody would actually sue, but that this would have such a chilling effect it would end abortion as it appears to have, that they didn't anticipate the wacky factor and that the wacky factor might, as it makes its way through the courts, end up hurting their overall intent. I mean, does this pass the smell test? When you create a cause of action that anyone can sue, do you really imagine that and you put a $10,000 nice, shiny, bright object on dangling out there, you really think nobody's going to sue? No. I don't believe well, that. Well, I guess the question is, did they think that people who are mischief makers were going to sue? I mean, I don't know what they thought, but how could you not factor that I mean, into I, your... I thought well, of listen, that within like 12 yeah. seconds. So, I'm not a very smart so, person. So, But I guess leaving that aside, because their motivations don't... Is it part of their strategy no, no, to no, have no, them... No, no, oh. Does this... Now that it's in the court system and you have these wacky people uh, make, bringing these cases, does that imperil SB8 in a way that... Um, that's more dangerous to its ultimate original goal. Well, what's the goal? I mean, I so, right. I think it, it depends on what the goal is. I mean, 
in in one sense, this law has already wildly succeeded because it has ended abortion in Texas in the interim. I think they get to declare victory about that kind of no matter what. Yeah. I suppose if the law is now, you know, enjoined and there, it seems kind of embarrassing that these disbarred lawyers sued, maybe other states will be less likely to pass it. Maybe. But I don't know. They already got what they wanted from the Supreme Court tacitly. So I just sort of feel like it's all gravy well, for them. But if a court says you can't do this, if this hastens a court making a, a judgment about the constitutionality of the underlying law and it puts, well, first of all, I have two questions. One, now that we have facts on the ground and it has effectively shut down abortion in Texas, are those facts on the ground more powerful in making the um, undue burden case, A. And then B, if this, to the extent that these cases go forward, could a court rule that it's unconstitutional and the weakness and zaniness of the actual cases somehow make it easier for courts to do that and thereby make a ruling that affects not just SBA, but anybody else who would try and make this kind of mischief with the quirky law that allows private citizens to sue as a way of getting around the normal judicial review? I mean, I guess I think there's a few layers, right? There's politics. Like, does this um, embarrass the legislators in Texas who pass this law? Does it just seem like a big scam? Do, Do they lose support in some way? I don't know, maybe, but it also seems like Texas is going to remain uh, Republican run in the state legislature for a while now. And I kind of doubt that anyone's going to lose their seat over this. It's possible, like I said before, that other states could be a little more wary, but I don't think so, because I think that the real endgame here is for the Supreme Court to change the undue burden standard. There's, you know, this separate Mississippi 15-week ban that is going, that now is on the schedule for a hearing before the Supreme Court in the beginning of December. That's uh, another vehicle for chiseling or hollowing out or completely overturning Roe versus Wade. So there are all these different pieces in play, right? And the fact that this blatantly unconstitutional law has been allowed to stand is such a huge, um, unexpected um, boon that the Supreme Court gave to the people who thought up this law. Like, they are heroes in their world no matter what. And and from as a sort of tactical matter, like, they deserve to be because they succeeded with this procedural trick in a way that other lawyers did not. But if a, a court weighs in and said this is unconstitutional, that would seem to weaken their Case. Yeah, sure. But it was always unconstitutional, right? Like, I mean, if Roe versus right, Wade has you, any, I mean, are, I guess if you're saying to me, like, is the fact that they could lose in court mean that they're weaker than if they keep winning? Sure. But they, I don't think they ever expected to get this far. That's the point. Like, it was a very, very out, Hail Mary outside shot. And it worked. They caught the postal sure. truck. Yes. And also they have stopped the mail from being delivered. And that's really what right. they wanted. So right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. But but now we are where we are. We're holding the and post so office hostage. Where we, I mean, it seems you have two alternatives. You could have SBA exists, abortions shut down in Texas. There are no challenges to abortion providers. It sits and it's just inert. But now you have cases in the in the world, and I'm wondering whether those cases that are in the world are just going to come and go, and abortion will be outlawed forever in Texas, 
or whether something about the fact that those cases now have to make it through the legal system and are doing it in this quasi-shambolic way, whether that has any effect outside of the corners of but the cases themselves. Isn't what Emily is saying or what Emily, what you started with, it's just there's these timelines, which is that it's going to take a yes. while for these cases to work their way through courts. And so that's one timeline is the state court activity around that. And the other timeline sure. is that the Supreme Court is going to hear this Mississippi abortion case, which could just end row anyway. Well, that's and, a distinct and, thing. And, and so just, that if you keep if you keep abortion outlawed in Texas until the Supreme Court hears sure. this Mississippi case, you've 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 gotten an incredible victory. I mean, also from the point of view of women who are seeking abortions right now and until this is resolved, this is life altering. And if you and sure. if you think that abortion is murder, then you're preventing a lot of murders. And so the stakes I, are very high in the short term for the actual people affected. So I guess I'm just trying to figure out what the timeline is. The fastest way the facts on the ground could change would be this lawsuit finds a judge who enjoins the law. It's emergency appeal and a Texas appellate court and the Texas Supreme Court fast track it all the way through. And they say this law is unconstitutional and it stops next week. I don't think that's going to happen. But, wait, are you saying the DOJ law there? or the No, I'm talking the about the, the I'm just yeah, imagining a kind of hugely fast. I mean, courts can fast track stuff if they want. Like, in theory, you could have an emergency injunction and everything could stop tomorrow. It's just that that's not going to happen. And just playing that forward, is there anything in the way that these cases were brought about that that makes that possibility any more or less probable? Or is it always the unconstitutionality or constitutionality of SB8 and the way in which it's being challenged doesn't matter at all? No, the way in which it's being challenged, given the um, the rules of the game as the Supreme Court has bizarrely set them, matters enormously because the Supreme Court said that you had to have... Um, the law actually go into effect, basically, or at least suggested it. At least they didn't allow for pre-enforcement, um, right? They, The Supreme Court didn't stop the law from going into effect before it did go into effect. They said, we need a lawsuit. And now we have these two different, at least, vehicle lawsuits. And so the question is, what's the timeline for them playing out? I don't think it's going to be fast. I think part of this is about changing the facts on the ground in the interim, and that that is a, a victory and a fight in itself. The, there was a great piece, Emily, I don't know if you saw this in a law blog, Michael Dorff, who I imagine is a distinguished person, pointing Indeed. about that our, the U.S. policies on standing or on who can who rule can bring and a lawsuit. Yeah. bring in lawsuit are really messed up and that lots of other countries. So in the U.S., we ha- require sort of actual harm to somebody in order to litigate, that you have to show that you are harmed or you're going to be harmed pretty directly in order to, to bring a lawsuit. But in many countries that are our friend countries, our comparable countries, there are rights to appeal laws that are granted to affected institutions preemptively. And legislators, so crucially. That legislators can challenge things or other institutions. It's really crazy that abortion clinics are been put out of business but aren't allowed to challenge the law putting out of business without themselves first running the risk of ruinous fines and litigation it's crazy that they can't that they can't test this and and that this actual harm standard seems bizarre when you think of it this way well it's also particularly uh i'm going to use the word ironic that a law that is confers incredibly broad standing anyone can sue cannot be challenged because nobody has standing to challenge it is that 
could that be part of its undoing, Emily, do you think? So in other words, the authors of the bill thought they were being ingenious, allowing ordinary citizens and not state officials to enforce it. But but the chaos that that has unleashed, could could the Supreme Court or I guess the would it be the fifth district? So maybe it's not. Okay. But anyway, a court, at, a court at some point say the this thing you thought was so clever turns out leaving aside the constitutional question on abortion. This thing you thought was so clever is so unconstitutional. It dies just because of that. Yeah, I mean, that would be a reasonable concern for the Supreme Court to express this incredibly broad right to sue of private citizens because you don't like something that's happening that has no direct effect on you. That seems like a bad precedent to set. And there are lots of other (laughs) um, situations in which you could imagine other uh, legislators passing laws like this that people on the right would not like so much if anyone had a right to sue because they didn't think you should have a gun in your house, for example. I mean, this is not this kind of bounty hunting Everybody gets to tell everyone else what to do by running to court is not a great model, I would say. Yeah. Emily, let's close, though, on SB4. Texas, not satisfied with stopping abortion throughout the state, has now also banned, uh, what is the the term for medical abortions? Pharmaceutical abortions. Abortion with pills, yep. After seven weeks. Previously, it was after 10 weeks. So now you cannot legally get a a medical abortion in Texas after seven weeks and also put in very draconian restrictions about who, how you can get those pills delivered to you. They cannot be mailed to you, for example, even though that medical abortions are incredibly safe. And, and, uh, is this a, is this a, is this an alarming law too? Yeah. I mean, in the longer run, if SB8 does wind up being struck down, SB4 is going to have a big impact because, when you think about the future of abortion in places where there's been such warring for so many years over clinics, then you think, huh, well, maybe if people could do this in the privacy of their own homes, consulting with an abortion provider who's out of state, getting a small package in the mail, it's also cheap. There are services now offering this for like $100 or two or $300 in the United States in states where this is kind of telehealth is legal. That seems like a really appealing future. And so if you oppose abortion, it is crucial to cut off that kind of access. And I think making it illegal to mail the pills into the state really chills any service that's U.S.-based that would want to be providing those pills. And there are more and more of those services operating in blue states. There is also an international service called Aid Access, which is run by a doctor named Rebecca Gompertz, who I wrote about several years ago for the Times Magazine, and they have been mailing pills into Texas and and other red states in the United States. Emily, the the FDA is looking into whether the pandemic era rule that allowed abortion pills to be sent by mail could be made permanent. How how would that... So let's imagine they say they can be mailed and it's permanent. How does that clash play out? Yes. Another legal layer of this is that since 2000, since sort of the advent of um, abortion with pills, the FDA has placed these very heavy restrictions on who can send them. You have to be a specially registered um, abortion provider. 
they were treated as dangerous drugs. We have more and more research that there's no reason for them to be treated that way. And yet these restrictions remain in place. And so during COVID, the FDA lifted them, allowed for a lot of mailing because people were having trouble going in to see their doctors. It was like a COVID. And this also changed in the United Kingdom. And there was a lot of research showing that it was just as safe and effective. Women didn't need to go in. And importantly, they didn't need to go in for ultrasounds to date and locate their pregnancies, they could date the pregnancies on their own in consultation over the phone or over video. So that is a huge finding and a huge shift in our understanding. I mean, I think a lot of people thought that was true before, but now it's really clear. And former FDA commissioners have called for overturning these restrictions. It's one of the key demands that pro-choice groups have made of the Biden administration. That would be huge because it would just sort of lift this like legal shadow over medical abortion, which has really, I think, stunted its growth in the United States. The rate of medical abortion versus surgical abortion, they're much greater percentage of medical abortions in Europe and other countries than in the United States. And it has all kinds of implications down the line. Although if the states, if the red states keep their abortion telemedicine bans, it doesn't solve the whole problem for access, right? If I were a woman in Texas and I found myself pregnant and I needed an abortion today and and I decided because of SB4 that I couldn't get avail myself of something from a blue state. A blue state might not be willing to mail me these pills anymore because because of this law. How easy and quick is it for me to find, contact, receive something from Europe? And how is there any chance that gets intercepted? Are there, you know, drug-sniffing dogs that sniff out Miprestosol, or however you pronounce that, that, at the border of Texas? I mean, there are no guarantees, but I was on Reddit yesterday watching some of these questions come across the transom, and people are receiving their pill packages from Aid Access in Texas. Now, SB4 hasn't gone into effect, so... You know, there's not a zero legal risk here, but the notion that the federal got that customs, the post office, the state is going to open all this mail. Um, I mean, I guess we're going to find out, but I doubt it. And if you are looking for information about any of this, there's a group called Plan C that has a very clear website with the latest information about how to get the pills and where you can get them. And they think, and I think they're correct, that they're pro- just providing information. They're not. S- sending pills or not selling anything, and that that is all First Amendment protected. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. Those bonus segments, we love doing them. They're really fun. And uh, you get them by just paying $1 for your first month of membership. Our Slate Plus segment this week is we're going to talk about the uh, Clinton impeachment and the new TV show about impeachment, and which I'm watching and I'm enthralled by, but John and Emily are not. And we're going to talk about the hold that the Clinton impeachment has on each of our psyches and why it either persists or does not persist with us. So go to slate.com slash GabFest plus and support the GabFest, support the other work that Slate is doing and get other benefits like no ads on any Slate podcast as well as bonus episodes of shows too. So I think none of us really had been paying much attention to the disappearance and murder of Gabby Petito, who has was killed while on a cross-country Instagram van life journey with a boyfriend who has since disappeared, nor have I paid much attention to the absolutely gothic weirdness of the Murtaugh saga, 
which is a family of lawyers and ne'er-do-wells that has been involved in a seemingly limitless number of suspicious deaths and murders and near murders and murders for hire in South Carolina. And so I was sitting there smugly thinking, oh, I don't, I don't concern myself with such things as true crime. I'm not susceptible to missing white girl syndrome, the syndrome whereby the disappearance of some young white woman mobilizes the entire internet and media while the disappearance of black and brown women is met with a shrug. So I'm not, I'm not guilty of this. But then I realized, like, I'm totally guilty of this. I spent, I've watched The Jinx. I've watched The Staircase. I watched Wild Wild Country. I watched some of Making of a Murderer. I saw Brothers Keeper. I watched Capturing the Freedmen's. I listened to Serial. I listened to S-Town. So, like, <laughs> oh my God. where do you find list. the time? That was some high-quality <laughs> TV and audio. It's high-quality. Just... <laughs> yeah, but it's, well, but it's like... The, but it's there all is, true crime is It's all point. true crime. It's like... What, the, so, I don't know if you... First of all, do you guys want to confess? Are you susceptible to this at all? I also had really no idea who Gabby Petito was until basically I had to prep for the show. Uh, I am totally susceptible to great crime and punishment stories i mean absolutely i i don't i i think i mean i get why you're mixing all these things together and they're related but i think there's some separate threads of this too like when somebody disappears mysteriously it's a mystery we a lot of us have like a lot of detective story curiosity in our veins i think what is distressing about this particular moment is that it feels so it's arbitrary that Gabby Petito got so much coverage, but it's not random. There is a way in which the particular disappearances, there'll be a picture of a young white woman who will just look appealing broadly and like someone you can identify with to white America. And then the appetite, the consumption, the social media posts, the media coverage just sort of all amps up and takes off. It's true that it doesn't happen to the same degree for people of color. And there's nothing fair about that. Like, that sucks. But I don't think we have to, I don't know, maybe I'm, I we don't think we have to renounce our curiosity about crime and punishment. And it's such a, like, fascinating aspect of human behavior, right? That people do these terrible things. Like, I don't know. That would be, that's like renouncing fairy tales to me. Right. I think Emily has once again brought wisdom. I I think of this as like the (laughs) flip side to The Bachelor. Like The Bachelor like enthralls this huge coterie of mostly young, mostly white women who like this kind of romance and drama about people who look kind of like them and mostly are kind of in their culture. And I feel like the the true crime about the murder and disappearance of young white women is is basically the flip side of this. It's the horror version of what's being shown in the the Bachelor. It's like there's it's narcissistic. We're always narcissistic. We put ourselves in any bit of drama. We tend to put ourselves easily into someone's shoes. I mean, that's the fa- the failure is the failure of empathy to put yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't seem to be like you. Yes, I think the difference is also that that um, you know we in in an awful way value. Or, or this phenomenon ends up valuing human life that happens in this gawk thing, this way that causes us to gawk and and give no energy to the human lives that pass quickly and in yeah. greater numbers in communities that aren't under the camera's glare. And so that's that's the huge human failing problem. Big problem. The other big problem is just the the pleasure 
taking pleasure, which is what you do when you watch a TV show or listen to a podcast, taking pleasure in what is actual human misery and actual human suffering. And that's repellent. I remember listening, I, this, I still think back on this, to Serial, which is the kind of the granddaddy of all of these in some ways. Well, no, like there's a lot of true crime before Serial, but, but of the high end, uh, the high end true crime podcast, Serial, certainly the, and the glee that Sarah Koenig felt as she reenacted a car ride the accused killer made and the kind of pleasure that she took in that and the excitement that she had, which was infectious and you felt on the radio and you were, your own heart was pumping. You were excited about it. And it's and then you think like, you know what this is about? This is about a girl, a teenage girl who was murdered like, and whose families was destroyed by this and a person who was going to spend his life in prison because of it and and what where do i get off like finding such such pleasure in the consumption of it and that made me feel pretty bad can i throw some other things on the table and get your reactions to them one is that lizzie borden right who was acquitted for killing her father and stepmother was a was a you know case that that kind of caught the nation's attention for some of the similar reasons i mean one was the kind of the rise and fury of sensationalist journalism. And the other was that the crime pulled back the curtain on, um, you know, high society and the kind of ugliness and the messiness. And so there was gawking, not just at the, at the violence, but also at the, at the family, which I feel like is partially what's up with the, with the, um, the South Carolina murders, which is, you know, it's a window into this kind of certain kind of society, the Murdoch, Alex Murdoch murders, like um, this gothic Southern low country thing that is having the curtain brought back. But I think going back to the race question is, in some of these cases, the fact that they get off for so long or can hide murders, like what always strikes me when you hear these stories is like, how the hell did they hide a murder? Like, how do you do that? And how do you do it repeatedly and with such success? And part of it is because in the culture, people of certain wealth and stature can kind of brush stuff away. And so we know about how the system gives no chances and no opportunity to people who are innocent. And this is the flip side of that, which is people who are dripping with guilt can kind of sashay their way past the constable. And that's because of, you know, if you're of the right class and color, you can make it, which ends up in the end making these stories more of a treasure hunt or a mystery because there are so many twists and turns in which the obvious thing, which is that they did it, wasn't, you know, solved within the first 10 minutes and you had to wait three years for it. So, you know, one thing that occurs to me in all of this is that when there is intense media and social media interest in a story, we forget that the people at the center of it are just human beings like us. They become kind of exoticized and you sort of forget that actually like they had normal lives. They're not asking for all of this attention almost all the time. A year or two ago, I went on a podcast that Amanda Knox was doing, and she was interviewing me, and we were just talking about these issues, and she seems like a lovely person, super thoughtful, and I just thought to myself that I had, I didn't really follow her story closely when it was in the Italian courts, and she was being accused of murder, and then um, acquitted of murder, but like, 
she was just like a normal teenager or 20-something when that happened. And when I was actually talking to her, of course, I realized that. And there's a way in which like the media glare is so warping and distorting and horrible. And if you imagine yourself or anyone you love having to endure that at the center of it, there's no way that they could possibly have a chance of coming off well if that's not in the cards. Like you just lose all control of how you're perceived. I don't think there's anything wrong with our curiosity in crime. I mean, I really do think it's like a pretty basic human impulse. And it's like the role that the Iliad and the Odyssey played, epic poetry, Shakespeare, television, fairy tales, all these things. Like we're trying to understand each other and ourselves. And sometimes that's in our most lurid, captivating, gawking moments. But I think that if you forget about the essential humanity and that everybody has deserved to be treated with some dignity, that's the problem. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you're discussing the latest true crime podcast you're listening to and you tire of discussing that and then you turn to the next topic, Emily, what is the next topic? I am totally fascinated by this ongoing story about a defamation lawsuit involving Dominion Voting Systems and a former Dominion employee, Eric Krumer. So Eric Krumer is bringing the lawsuit against people in the Trump campaign and, you know, some of the lawyers who were making these unfounded allegations about problems or supposed fraud with the Dominion Voting Systems in the 2020 election. This litigation is just turning into a fire hose of interesting documents. And I started paying attention to this because my colleague Sue Dominus did this great story in the Times Magazine about Eric Coomer and what it was like to be at the center of these wild allegations. But now we have this bombshell internal memo that's come out of this defamation lawsuit in which it turns out that the Trump campaign's internal efforts to figure out, like, oh, is there anything to these crazy fraud allegations? No, indeed, there was nothing, and they knew it all along, which I guess isn't surprising, but it's satisfying to have that verified. And I look forward to seeing what else comes out of this Eric Coomer litigation. Sometimes don't they have to prove intent for for harm? In other words, it's not just that you did a dumb thing that harmed somebody, but you did a dumb thing that harmed somebody knowing that you were totally wrong. Yeah, it's Does a really help? high standard to win a defamation suit. You have to prove actual malice um, or that you were, had um, reckless disregard for the truth. I don't know That's if it. Eric Krumer is going to win, but I am excited that whatever ends up happening, we are learning things through this litigation. I mean, the Trump campaign turned over a whole tranche of documents, and now reporters can go through them. And I, to understand the genesis of all of this, I really recommend Sue Dominus's story in the Times Magazine a week or two ago about Coomer. John, what's your chatter? My chatter is um, a Bloomberg story by uh, Elizabeth Elkin. It totally gripped me. It is about, it's about the nature of food we eat and costs and the world in which we live. It's, a, it's about the rising price of fertilizer. Fertilizer is um, incredibly expensive and farmers are having to decide maybe not to um, use as much of it as possible because of the following reasons. One of the biggest plants, in fact, maybe the biggest plant in the United States is in New Orleans, which has been affected by severe weather. So that's a kind of climate change piece of it. European production has had to be held up because gas prices have gone up so much in Europe that it makes keeping plants open. That also might have a climate change piece. 
um, one of the major producers of potash. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it. Um, fertilizer is produced in Belarus. But of course, Belarus's largest state-owned enterprise of, of fertilizing manufacturing is being punished in response to the to the downing of the Ryanair flight with a journalist on it. Um, so there are sanctions that are causing that. In China, they are not, fertilizer is more expensive because they've um, shut down production as a part of curbing energy consumption and emissions. So that's the good end of climate change. And this all matters because the United Nations said that global food prices are near the highest they've ever, or they've been in a decade. And fertilizer prices spiking could hurt that. And so you have all of these inputs causing fertilizer price hikes but then there are all these ways it reverberates on the other end. So corn is super fertilizer dependent. So that'll increase the price of corn, which doesn't just mean people who buy corn are going to have to pay more. It's used to feed all kinds of livestock, which means the price there will go up. It also turns out that a byproduct of creating fertilizer is CO2, which is why in Europe they're apparently days away because the production of fertilizer is down. They're days away from running out of carbon dioxide to put in their sodas. So their sodas are all going to go flat in Europe. That's all the many, and I've probably forgotten like three other things that that are a result of this, but that's all the issues that are a part of and and come out of this spike in fertilizer prices. Theory of everything. It all comes back to fertilizer. I have a chatter. First, I want to say that CityCast, my day job, my dear CityCast, we are expanding. So we're coming to Houston. If you are in Houston, near Houston, interested in Houston, go to houston.citycast.fm. We're going to launch there in a couple of weeks with a newsletter and soon to follow with a podcast. It's all going to be done by Lisa Gray, who's an amazing, amazing former Houston Chronicle commentator and podcaster and reporter. She's just, she knows that town like nobody else. So houston.citycast.fm. But my real chatter is about this fascinating story that was in Nature about an ancient city right by the Dead Sea in what's now Jordan that's called Tel el-Hammam. And Tel el-Hammam was a city that, or town, regional, big, pretty big habitation site that had been occupied for 2,500 years near the Dead Sea. And suddenly, in 1650 BCE, 3,700 years ago, the town just was destroyed. It vanished. And so were many of the towns around it. Suddenly, this fairly fertile, uh, well-populated part of, of what's now Jordan was suddenly denuded of people. And they've been trying to figure out what happened. They've been looking at this. And they, you know, these 30-foot-high walls were blasted out. The human bones that are found from this moment were incinerated. There's all kinds of things that were bubbled up or turned into glass. And they've determined that this city was destroyed by a meteor, that a meteor strike came. And it was like the meteor that destroyed, uh, the meteor that appeared in Tunguska in Siberia at the beginning of the 20th century, which, you know, the, the, in that case, that was a thousand times the, the power of the atom bomb. So this meteor destroyed these towns. So fascinating, fascinating that the archaeological researchers figured it out. But then what's really fascinating is that it's completely like echoes and connects to this biblical myth of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Sodom, this town that is destroyed in this part, a town right by the Dead Sea that's destroyed in this dramatic kind of hair-raising bolt of lightning fashion. 
you know, I'm not a biblical person who believes in the inerrancy of the Bible at all. I, just, I, you know, these are stories that are passed down. But you can, if this is a story, like this is a thing that happened in this area and this town is destroyed. And then you, you see in this book that's written starting around then, but mostly hundreds of years later, you see the echoes of the story in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Totally wow. great. Check it out in nature. Uh, and there's some public write-ups of it too. Listeners, you send us chatter to at SlateGabFest. We really appreciate your tweets to us at at SlateGabFest, um, which have brought us so much joy and so many cool, interesting things. And please keep them coming. This week's listener chatter comes from an old pal of mine, actually. Saw his name in our list, and I was thought, what, what a pleasure to hear from Jeffrey Itell. Uh, so let's hear from Jeff. Hello, GabFest. This is Jeffrey Itell from Ho Chi Minh City. My cocktail chatter this week concerns a video posted on YouTube that shows the uh, demolishment of 15 unfinished apartment buildings in Kuming, China. Apparently, they were uh, demolished uh, because they hadn't been occupied for seven years and there was water leakage in the basement. Anyway, it's worth looking at. It's a little eerie. Yeah, I watched this video. Um, Erie does not even begin to do this justice. It's crazy watching these buildings all come down at once or over the course of about 10 seconds. And it's it's apocalyptic. It's strange. It's beautiful. It's it's amazing. I strongly urge you to check out that YouTube video. Ooh, I'm excited. The weirdest part is that one of the buildings didn't fall. They wired it badly. And so it they exploded it and it just ended up standing like a leaning tower of Pisa. Like oh there's God. this gigantic building, it, all the other buildings around it, this landscape is totally destroyed. And then there's just one building at about 20 degrees to, to true. And it's, it's crazy. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabrielle Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. And June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. And also send us your conundrums at Slate.com slash conundrum. For Emily Basil and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So this is going to be a kind of a weird Slate Plus that I've, I seem to have foisted on John and Emily because they didn't, nobody came up with a better idea. So oh, listen to I that. Oh, I see. It's our listen fault. Listen to that. It is we your fault. We just didn't protest this weird idea. It's not even that yeah, weird no, idea. No, I think Emily came up with a perfectly reasonable idea, but you said it was lame. Yeah. Well, to say what your, your lame idea was and we'll let our <laughs> listeners... What was your lame idea? Well, I'm always trying to find a way to talk about the television oh, that we're watching. And so I thought we could talk about Ted Lasso, which just won some Emmys. And I finally started watching. And David said we <laughs> would be literally the last people on earth to talk about Ted literally, Lasso. Literally the last people. That which bad, is not wrong. And we were not going to do it. So here we are talking okay. about a television show that David has watched and John and I don't really want to watch. Okay. Maybe so that, you should but start by telling us about it. Yeah. We're going to talk about why you don't want to watch it. So I'm... I am watching Impeachment, American Crime Story. So American Crime Story is this really interesting fictionalized docu uh, series that's existed for a few years. The first one, there was a series about OJ. Then there was a series about the Johnny Versace murder. And now their third season is about uh, the impeachment of Bill Clinton and the, the sex scandal that he was embroiled in 
and the abuse of power scandal um, involving Monica Lewinsky. And it's a fictionalized retelling of the story, but that tries to skew to the facts and be very like true in its costumes and its details. And so you have uh, Monica Lewinsky played by, I think the actress is Beanie Feldman. Sarah Paulson is an amazing Linda Tripp. Clive Owen plays the president. Edie Falco is Hillary Clinton. Billy Eichner is a very creepy Matt Drudge. This telling so far, I've, now I guess we're three episodes in, is very sympathetic to Monica Lewinsky. It's a very, it's very much about kind of her side of the story. And then, then you also have the Paula Jones story happening. You have a, these Ann Coulter and George Conway circling at the edges. I'm totally gripped by it. This was this was for me the story of my youth, the story of my journalistic youth, the the whole Clinton Lewinsky uh, saga enthralled me and to watch it recreated almost note for note with these people is to me delightful and i don't even understand why you guys are avoiding it why you don't well, want to watch I it just can i just be lame and say when you say your youth it makes i hear you it sounds like you're saying teenagers this is like the beginning of your career my journalistic youth i said yeah it was my, yeah. it was my i was 20 when was this it started it was like 27 28 yeah when we were Emily, young and coming up you want to weigh in first? I'm all for the sympathetic to Monica Lewinsky retelling of the story because I think she got so unfairly treated in a way that, like, we would... It, it really is a crucial difference between the 90s and now. We have a lot of problems now, but we would not allow for that kind of power imbalance um, to have a woman caricatured like that. It was just horrible, and I remember being upset by it at the time, but I was not a journalist when it happened, or I think I was in law school, and if not, I was not a journalist with any real platform. So I'm all for that. I just, oh man, it's such a sad story. It's so tawdry. It goes on so... That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 